All right, good morning, everybody. Good to see you here. Nice, to, cooler weather. Is this not great? Yeah, and this week we don't have an air conditioner running out halfway through the service. It was warm last week, but you guys were great. Um, I'm going to have Mel come up for a minute. I need to publicly chastise him for that little thing that he did. What's that thing called? Is that a riff or a, what is that that you did? The, it's the Ghanaian style bass. <laughs> it's what? The Ghanaian style bass. Oh, it's the Ghanaian style bass. Yeah, I, I whispered in his ear like, like the students I know from Africa, they know how to like do worship. So um, that was really awesome. So we are continuing in Nehemiah. You got a few minutes? Okay. <laughs> we are continuing the book of Nehemiah. Um, and if you were here last week, we had everybody get one of these booklets. If this is your first week, if you were not here last week, you need one of these. We're going to be going through the scripture is in here and some other things. I think we got most people as you came in. Is there anybody who wasn't here last week? You happened to sneak by and you didn't grab one of these at the desk. If you are here, didn't, don't have one, would you raise your hand? We would love to put one in your hands. Is there anybody who wasn't able to pick up one of these on the way in? And no shame in raising the hand. Yeah, that's awesome. We can, uh, if you didn't grab, get one, there's a couple hands over here. Yeah, raise your hand. We would love to get one of those in your hand. One more thing I talked about, I think I found an error in here. And I talked about the Navajo tradition of always putting something intentionally wrong in something because only God is perfect. Uh, I found another one. Actually, I kind of knew this. Um, I forgot page numbers on these. So um, that's something you may want to sit down and spend your whole Sunday afternoon noon doing is uh, numbering 1 to 44. Um, if you get bored during the service, I guess that's something that you can do too. I'll know either you're like deeply taking notes or you're just doing the page numbers. But um, we're going to be on like page 10, I think, this morning. We're going to be in Nehemiah 1. It says 1-1 one, one at the top. It's about 10 pages in. Um, and I really encourage you, take notes. Like, circle words, underline things, drawing arrows to make connections, because we're going to be looking at some significant words and things in this text. Um, I think I should show you, Steve Lowen and I went through this a few years ago, and we had the text, and we marked it up, and if that was so rich for me, and if, so much of what I'm going to talk about came out of that time with him in the Word, and so I just encourage you to mark this, um, this thing up. And so last week, I introduced the series we talked about Nehemiah, that he's a rebuilder, and Nehemiah was a rebuilder, but he was also a restorer, right? And that how we are all called to be restorers, restoring all things, joining God in the restoration of all things back to him. Um, one person, one place at a time, that we all inhabit spaces, and there's people in those spaces, and God has put us there to be in stores, restorers, to be um, shalom bringers. And that's why the top of the book says living is a restorer, and under that, that we are joining God in joining him in all, the restoration of all things, and that we're trying to learn life and leadership lessons from his life on how we can live better as a restore. So that's, that's the purpose of this. One more thing, if you weren't here last week, it's essentially pages eight and nine that are unnumbered, but it's at the top, it says call to be restore. If you did not do this exercise of thinking through where are the main spaces of your life, the places you live, work, study, and play, what are the main spaces in your life? Who were the main people in those spaces? And if you were really to get it down to a few key spaces and a few key people, where is God wanting you to be a restorer and a shalom bringer? If you have not done that exercise, I, I really encourage you to walk through that. Um, that's really helpful. And I've had a number of people this week share with me how, how significant that exercise was to them, how it helped, me, helped them think through their life more intentionally. Um, had a number of people even share with me stories of how God 
actually brought them in connection with somebody that they had written down last Sunday. In fact, Mel is one of those. So Mel, I want you to just share, um, step up here and just share briefly, like, so what happened last week and how did that relate? Right. So um, last Sunday, if you guys were here, we did an exercise where, like, we wrote down some people um, that we, we would like to connect with, some people that we want, like, um, God to either bring in our life or if they're already in our life, for us to have some form of impact in their life. And um, the place that me and Amanda are living, um, we've been there for about 11 months now since we got married. And um, there are a couple of, like, neighbors around us that... Um, yeah, um, we, we don't know their names, we don't know who they are, we usually see them and then we wave at them and um, we, we go to our work and then they go to their works and stuff like that. So um, when we wrote um, them down, we, because we did not have their names, we ended up writing, okay, the neighbor across the street, that's what we wrote down, right? The neighbor um, on, on maybe um, two blocks away from us or two houses away from us. And so we wrote that one down and Tuesday, um, we did not have water, and um, Amanda was going to work, and usually she goes to work before I do, so um, I was parking the driveway, so I was just moving my car from the driveway, that way she can go to work, and then one of the neighbors approached me um, to ask me if we have water, and that was the first time that she, she spoke to me, and not only that, she told me her name, right? She was like, Mel? No, she did not know my name. <laughs> <laughs> wow, she's See, like a prophet. No, I know. It's, it's like we, we have a prophet right here, you know, like um, Gary is a prophet and he was, he was like, write something down and then you will have maybe like an experience or something like that. And then that experience happened to me. Okay, so she wanted to know if we have water and then she ended up um, telling me her name and then I told her my name. And I was thinking about it, not only her. Okay, so when she left, the other neighbor that we wrote down who was like two houses um, from us also ran to my car. And they started talking to me as well. And so I was thinking about it. I was like, Lord, we wrote this one down, not knowing that this opportunity will present itself. Okay? I did not get the opportunity to kind of share the gospel with her or anything of that sort. But just the mere fact that I got to know her name. Next time when I'm writing things down, when I'm praying for her, I'm not going to say the, the neighbor across the street. I'm going to mention her name and be like, Lord Terry. Right, and so I, I was very much touched when that happened because I was thinking, Lord, we wrote it down, and then you, you gave us or you, you presented me with the opportunity to get to know this person. You know, so it was, it was an awesome experience for me, and it reminded me that we have a prophet as a pastor. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't know if he's, he will agree to that, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he was a little afraid to have lunch with me Friday because he's like, he's like, I don't know, with a prophet, like, uh, I'm not sure what else you might prophesy on me yeah, or something. I know I have to be careful in your presence, dude. <laughs> but isn't that a great story? Isn't that a great story, Mel? Thank you for that. And how that, again, like I said, maybe it's the guy who walks the dogs, but how God brought not just Terry, but another neighbor who ran out to his car, not ran into his car, ran out to it, and like two of the people they'd written down that God actually made, paved the way. And so now just to intentionally be like, we know their names, we know how to pray, how can we start building a relationship? Is that not really cool? In the places where we live, work, study, and play, and that's what they did. So I really encourage you, if you haven't done that exercise, to do that. Would you stand with me? I want to read Nehemiah chapter 1. It's Again, in the end number, I think it's easy to find 1-1. I think it's page 10 if you were to number it. 
I'd like to read the first chapter of Nehemiah, and I'm telling you, he jumps in so well. I love this chapter, so follow along if you would. So back, I mean, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, that's Yahweh, by the way, the great I am, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your servant be, a, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. And this is the word of the Lord. So you may be seated. Um, again, part of the reason I did this, feel free to mark these up so we go through this text. Um, in his famous book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey said the first habit he found in people that were highly effective was the fact that they put first things first. First things first. Um, if you don't get first things right, you're not going to get second, third, and fourth things right. Do you remember when I did the idolatry series a few years ago? I wore my shirt buttoned wrong. I had the first button in the wrong hole. And the whole service, that's all people would think about. Nobody remembers what I talked about that day. They only remember how messed up my shirt was till the end when I pointed it out and corrected it. That if you don't get first things right, you're not going to get other things right. If you want to repaint a house, and if you don't do the hard work first of scraping the paint and of putting on primer, if all you do is paint over the old stuff, it's going to peel because you, you haven't done the first things. And I would say, here's what that means for us that we're going to get out of Nehemiah today, to be truly effective, to be truly restores, to be truly restores, restores we must put first things first. We have to do that. A restorer must first center their life on God and around him. That's what Sarah talked about. We have to be God-focused and God-centered. And right from the beginning, we're going to see this was the reality of his life. I love this chapter. So before we get into it, to look at that, I just want to do a few, look at his introductory words of the book. Um, and by the way, this book of Nehemiah was likely compiled, compiled by him from his journals, and then afterwards he's putting it into the form that we have. But he begins his book in verse 1 by introducing himself and setting the scene. So look at verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. And I want to stop there, because there's a lot there. Let me just briefly break it down. 
we learn right off the bat that Nehemiah is an exile. He's still living as an exile. He's not back home in Jerusalem. Um, he was born into exile, and he was living, he said, in the city of Susa. And there's Susa in the box. The Jews, when they were exiled in 586 B.C., when the Babylonians came, destroyed Jerusalem, took a, slaughtered a lot of them, took a number of them back to Babylon to the exile, 50 years after that happened, the Persian Empire came and conquered the Babylonian Empire, and then many of those exiles who were in Babylon got taken to the city of Susa. And Susa was the capital of the Persian Empire. Um, this is from archaeological digs where Susa is. That's actually the citadel that they unearthed where Nehemiah served. Is that not cool to see that? And he told us he wrote this in the Jewish month of Kislev. That would be mid-November to mid-December. It's going to be really important next week. Mid-November to mid-December is when he wrote this. And he said it was in the 20th year. He doesn't give much detail, but we know that what he means is, is it's in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, who's reigning in Persia at that time, and we're going to meet him next week. Um, he reigned from 464 to 423 B.C., so we know that this event happened in 440 B.C. So that's the stage that he sets. But I want to get to first things first. In order to truly be a restorer, we have to live a God-centered life. We have to start there. And this chapter clearly shows me that Nehemiah, that this was true of him, that he was a man who lived a God-centered life. And I'm going to see in this chapter six ways that I see that. And right now, you don't have to write all, if you're a note taker, don't start scribbling all six of these because they're going to show up as I go through them. But what we're going to see is that he was a man who shared God's heart. He was a man of prayer, a man of the word. He was a man who had a deep passion for God, who was a servant of God, and who was a man who was living on mission with God. That's how we know that he was a, a God-centered man. So first, let's do the first one. He was a man who shared God's heart. A man whose heart was in full alignment with God's heart. Full alignment. Look at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. He said, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. Um, we don't know why, but obviously his brother had already returned in one of the previous returns to Jerusalem, and he's coming back. Business trip or something, I'm not sure. But then he continues. He says, I questioned them about, and it's going to be two things. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. So he wanted to know, how's the city? How are the people? That's his question. So this is obviously on his heart. Because he's intentionally taking the initiative to bring up his homeland. And their response is in verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, Nehemiah, they're in great trouble and disgrace. And the wall of Jerusalem, it's broken down and the gates are burned with fire. So the, the city's not good. The people aren't good. Um, in that age, to have a city without walls meant it was totally unprotected, and the people, and it, you would have been a city of disgrace. Anybody could evade or attack at any time. People felt totally uncertain. In fact, likely wouldn't even build homes in the ruins. We're going to see that in a few chapters. Um, so, things are not good back home. And in the words of Derek Kidner, one of the commentators on Nehemiah, he says, this is not what he was expecting to hear. 
It's not what he was expecting. And to Nehemiah, it was a shattering blow to hear this reality, a shattering blow. So verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Main takeaway from this morning, real men do cry. (laughs) Real men do cry. Not really the main takeaway. But for some days, he says, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Here's what that shows me. That Nehemiah's heart was captured with the things that captured God's heart. That his heart was attuned to God. That his heart beat with the things that made God's heart beat in full rhythm with God. Because God longed for the full restoration of Jerusalem and his people. And Nehemiah had that exact same longing. So he shared the heart of God. Like God, he was a restorer. And I said last week that we're called to be restorers, right? Shalom bringers. We're called to be rebuilders of the ruins. That's our calling. But, you know, in order to do that, your heart has to be broken by the things that break God's heart. You've got to have your heart broken. You have to see with the eyes of God. You have to see the things that He sees. And that's not easy, right? I just talked this week with somebody, a dear friend, and we were talking about how busy we were and how distracted we had become. And you can become so preoccupied, preoccupied with your own stuff, I totally get this, that you fail to occupy the places that God has put you in to be fully present. Have you ever had that experience? You're so preoccupied, you really don't occupy the place. You lose sight of the things that breaks God's heart. And I want you, what I see with Nehemiah is whenever you have your heart in a tune with God and aligned with his heart, it creates in you an intentionality. Um, you pray along with Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, the prayer, Lord, break my heart with what breaks your heart. You pray prayers like, God, give me the eyes to see the things that you see around me. And when you do that, that intentionality leads to a, you're keeping your eyes open to the realities around you, the people God's put in your life, those places. You're like, God, show me, where's the brokenness here? Where are you wanting to bring restoration, whether it's in physically, emotionally, relationally, or spiritually? Help me to see those things. And that's so true of Nehemiah because, again, he initiated this conversation. So we know that as soon as they arrived, he asked the question that his heart is in alignment with God. So that's the first thing I see. And so the question comes like, where'd you get a heart like that, Nehemiah? A heart in alignment with God. And I would say it really comes from the next two, that he was a man of prayer and a man of the word. So second, I want to get into this, that he was a man of prayer. What does Nehemiah do right after he hears this news and his heart's broken? What's the first thing he does? He prays. Look at verse 4. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the Lord God of heaven. So the first thing he does is fast and pray. And I find this so instructive that that's the first thing he turns to. Because it tells me that God really is the center of his life that he's the first one that he turns to with this news. It also tells me that he in humility is utterly dependent upon God, and he knows that. In the words of Zechariah um, 4.6, it's not by might nor power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. He deeply knew and understood that. And I think sadly, when I, you know, anytime I'm reading about the reality of Scripture, his life, for many of us, at least for me, Our first response is not prayer, but is action. Is that not right? The first thing I want to do is I want to figure it out, and then I want to do something. 
that's the first place I tend to go. And I'm so challenged by Nehemiah that he first went to the Father. That he first went to the Father. It's because he knew that this task was way bigger than him, bigger than anything that he brought to the table. He knew that only God could take care of this problem. And so he took it to him. Um, He knew in the words of verse 4, these are great words, underline these. He knew that God is the great and awesome God. The great and awesome God. Who in the words of, down in verse 11, who had great strength, underline that one, and a mighty hand. And that only God could accomplish this task. Something else I love about Nehemiah. This just wasn't for him a one-time prayer that he offered up. Look at verse 6. In his own words, this is worth like putting a box around or something. In his own words, he says, the prayer your servant is praying before you. What are the next three words? Day and night. Day and night. He wasn't just an occasional prayer. He was persistent in his prayer. He was persistent in his prayer. And there is so much more in this chapter that shows me how important prayer was to him. Um, if, you're, if you're like writing up, marking up that text, I want you to circle five words with me. Because the word pray in some form occurs five times in this chapter. It's in verse four, prayed, circle that one. In verse two, I mean in verse six, we see it twice, prayer, praying. And twice in verse 11, both times it's prayer. So you can see how important prayer is to him, how often it's repeated in the text. And this prayer, in verses 5 to 11, this makes up the vast majority of the first chapter. In fact, it's two out of every three words. So prayer is so important to him. And I wish I could, there's some stuff, there's some rich nuggets I wish I could take out of this prayer, and I don't have time. Uh, Among other things, Jordan and I tomorrow, I'm going to talk about a few things that I had to leave on the editing room floor, okay? Related to this prayer. But there's some things in it that are really cool. Um, but I do want to point out two things. His two primary requests. Verse 8, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. That's his first request. Would you remember the instruction that you gave? And his second request is verse 11, halfway through. Give your servant success today. Give your servant success today. I'm going to come back to those in a minute, but that's the two requests that he has. But here's the point I'm trying to make, that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. It was central to who he was. It was, an, it was an essential part of his life and of his leadership as a restorer. This prayer, this book is 13 chapters long. This is the first of 12 prayers we're going to see in the book of Nehemiah. And what we're going to see as we go throughout the book is that he consistently went to prayer first when something came up. We'll see it next week a couple of times. So as I thought about this, and I thought about my own life, do you, do you all not feel like of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the hardest, the one you most fail at? Do you not feel that way? I do. Just reminded, the prayer is essential to the life of a restorer, right? It's only as we bathe our work as a restorer, seeking God's empowerment, that we can really truly make an effect, right, on people. Because this work of restoration, it is too difficult to do on your own. You sense that. The brokenness is too great, right? So we need him to step in with us. As Oswald Chambers famously said, prayer is not the beginning of the work, it is the work. It's not preparation for the battle, 
It is the battle. I wish I had that deep in my bones. And I'm praying for the Lord to make that the reality, but we need to become people of prayer like Nehemiah. Ian Bounds famously said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, or better machinery, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but it needs men and women whom the Holy Spirit can use, men and women of prayer, mighty in prayer, because the Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through people. He does not come on machinery, but on people. He does not anoint plans, but people, people of prayer, people of prayer. Third, Nehemiah was a man of the word, the word of God. It was central to his life. And we're going to see all through this book, it wasn't just his knowledge of the word of God, it was his commitment to it. Um, multiple times we're going to see that. And there's several things in this chapter that show me how important the Word of God was to him. The first one is actually found in verse 2. Do you see that word? It talks about the Jewish remnant. Like put a box around that word remnant because that's a really significant word that comes out of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. 30 times they use that word remnant in speaking about the people that God will restore back to exile. And so by, by referencing that, he is showing that he is steeped in the, those two prophets. Um, and the second reason we know the word of God was so important to him is because it's central in the prayer that he prayed. It's central in that prayer. Look, he starts his request in verse 8 by saying to God, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. And then in verses 8 and 9, he reflects back to God the instruction and the things that God said in the Torah about his people being taken away but eventually returned from exile. And he references this stuff to God. He draws on several Old Testament passages from the Torah. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy, you don't have to write all these down, but Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 30. And even more significantly in verse 10, you can compare these later. He quotes almost word for word, Moses' intercession for the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 9.29. And then verse 11, um, not in verse 11, where he talks about your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Um, he's rehearsing back to God the exodus from Egypt. And to me, this is all evidence that this was a man who was saturated with the word of God and who was grounded in it. This was a man who knew his Bible. He was a man who knew his Bible. And what I really love here, and some of you are really good at this, um, is that he prayed the word of God back to God. That's what I really love. He was so steeped in it. He knows that God is a God who stands by what he says. I mean, look at verse 5. Because he calls God, he specifically says of him, he is the God who keeps his covenant of love. He's a God who keeps his promises. And so what he's doing is he's reminding God in this prayer of his promises from his word. Is that not cool? He's praying his word back to him. And he's saying, you promised to restore your people. And Lord, I, I'm wanting to hold you to that. And, and what's so cool about this to me is if you, and the people I know who do this well, when you're praying the word of God back to him, what you're doing is you're saying to him, your words matter to me so much that I not only know them, but I'm just going to remind you of those things. Not because you need reminded, but I just want you to know this is how important it is. And I trust that you're the kind of God who will respond and do the things that you promised. I believe it and I trust you. Is that not cool? 
One more thing about Nehemiah and the Word. He's not just interested in knowing it. He wants to live it out. And I see this in the text in a couple of ways. One, he knows the value of obedience. Again, I don't care, circle, underline, whatever. In verse 7 and verse 9, you'll see a form of the word obedience. It is obeyed in verse 7 and obey in verse 9. So obedience is important to him. But more importantly, look at verse 5, because here's what he says in verse 5. Where he says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant love with those who love him and who what? Who keep his commandments. And when he says that, he's putting himself in the company of those people. So I just want you to know the word of God was important to Nehemiah. He was like, in the words of Psalm 1-2, he was a man who delighted himself in the law of God. In the word of Joshua 1-8, he was somebody who kept the book of the law always on his lips, who meditated it on it day and life, and who was sure to keep everything that was written in it. So he was a man of the word, truly so. Just that's good enough, right? This chapter is so rich. Fourth, Nehemiah had passion for God. Look near the beginning of his prayer in verse 5. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, you know, I don't know, big circle around this or something, double underline, with those who love him with those who love him. And again, he's putting himself in this company. He's really speaking of himself. And that Hebrew word for love is the Hebrew word ahav. If you were to look at it, it's almost, it looks like ahab, but it's ahav. Um, that's a great word. That Hebrew word is very rich. It means it's frequently translated like beloved, somebody that is dearly loved by you. It's somebody you have a close affection for. In Genesis 21, when Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac twice in that chapter, God says to him, this son whom you dearly love, okay, ahav, it's the kind of love a parent has for a child. If you're a parent, you get ahav love, right? It's the, friend of, it's the love of friends. When it says that Jonathan loved David, right, it was ahav. It's the love between lovers. This is a really strong word. It is no wonder to me that Nehemiah's heart beat with God's heart because his heart beat for God. His heart beat for God. And he not only loves God, but he knows him intimately. Ten times in this book of Nehemiah, we're going to see him call God, my God, that personal connection. Twice in this chapter, the beginning of the prayer in verse 5 and in verse 11, when he says, Lord, that's the personal name of God, Yahweh. So he's like, I have this personal connection to you. And he's not only passionate about God, but he's passionate for his name. Look at verse 11. I love this. But I love everything in here. I keep saying that. Like, I just love the chapter, okay? I love the word of God. Verse 11. Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who, what's the next word? Who delight in revering your name. Okay, and he's putting himself again into that company. I love that. He delighted in revering God's name and lifting God high and shining the spotlight on God. And you remember a person's name referred to their character, right? The essence of who they are. And by extension, it referred to their reputation. 
So he cared not only did he revere God's name, but he, he had a passion for God's name to be known and revered. That was the passion of his heart. The passion movement started by Louis Giglo has challenged this younger generation. I take the challenge personally. He's challenged the younger generation to be the 26-8 generation. Because in Isaiah 26-8, he says, Lord, walking in the way of your law, we wait for you. Your name and your renown is the passion of our hearts. That's why he calls it the passion movement. It's the passion of our hearts. And that was Nehemiah's heart. And I think if he had known it, he would have daily prayed the famous prayer of Jesus. Our Father, who art in heaven, in the words of the King James, hallowed or hallowed be your name. May your name be lifted up as special and honored as holy. So he had a deep running passion for God. Fifth, Nehemiah was a man who saw himself first and foremost as a servant of God. So get that pen out. This is a really good one, okay? We're going to see the word servant multiple times in this chapter, and they're really significant. Two times in verse 6, servant, servants. Once in verse 7, servant. One in verse 8, servant. Those last two referring to Moses. One in verse 10, servants. Three in verse 11, servant, servants, servant. Kind of like a... Dr. Seuss kind of thing, right, that we're doing. That's eight times, eight times he clearly saw himself as a servant of God. And is it any wonder that he saw himself as a servant for God? Because early on when you see in his prayer how he saw God. Again, look back, back to verse 4. When I heard these things, and we're going to see this twice, okay? When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven... And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. How did he reference God? Lord and the God of, of heaven, the creator, the creator. Do you remember when we went through Psalm 8 this summer and we talked about the first part of Psalm 19? That when I see the creator and, and the, his majesty in that, it puts me in my place, right? It tells me who is God and who is not God. And I feel like Nehemiah, by the words he uses, is saying, God, I know where I belong in this relationship. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care for me, that God does not serve us because Jesus came as a servant. But what it means is, is he knew who ultimately served whom. Who ultimately served whom. And that's why as we go through this book, we're going to see Nehemiah is a servant leader. And even though he was a man who possessed great authority... You'll see that in the next couple of chapters. He wielded that authority well and for the benefit of others because Nehemiah was a man who lived under authority, not in authority. And there's a really big difference. He lived under authority, not in authority. That was the first sermon I did at 12. Do you know that? From Joshua. That we need to be people who live under authority, not in authority. So Nehemiah was a servant of God. And then sixth, Closely connected to that last one, Nehemiah was a man who was on mission with God. And therefore, he was willing to sacrifice himself for that mission. We already know he's on mission because he was so concerned with the, rest, with the restoration in Jerusalem. He asked about it, first question, when his brother came back. But we know that he's all in on mission with God by the end of his prayer in verse 11. After praying to God, remember, 
you know, your promises to these people. Praying about the Jerusalem and the restoration of that. Here's what he prays at the end of verse 11. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And he's referring to King Artaxerxes. And I love this because Nehemiah is not simply praying and asking for God to send somebody else. He's praying saying, I'm willing to be the answer to my own prayer. I'm willing to be the answer to my own prayer. He made himself available to meet the need if that's what God desired. Nehemiah in his prayer volunteers. In the words of Isaiah, he says, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. And he did this knowing that if God sent him, it would come at great personal cost. In the words of Warren Wiersbe, if he did this, if God sent him, he would sacrifice the comfort and security of the palace for the rigors and dangers of life in a ruined city. Luxury would be replaced by ruins, prestige for ridicule, and slander. So there's a really big lesson to learn here. That God wants not so much your ability as he wants your availability. Not so much your ability as your availability. In other words, your greatest ability is your availability. That's your greatest ability. And last week we did that exercise. And again, if, if you weren't here, get on pages 8 and 9 and walk through this. Lord, what are the places you put me? Who are the people in those places? And it's not just that I want to know that and I want to pray for those people. It's like I want to be available. Here I am. Send me to be a restorer in those places. It's to seek to be used of God and to pray a prayer like this. Can, can you, you don't have to stand, but can you pray this with me? Because this is the kind of prayers or store I need to be praying, I think. Lord, I'm not in the spaces I inhabit by accident. It's not by accident that I have influence with the people who inhabit those spaces. So here am I. Send me. I may not feel very able, but I make myself available. Lord, I don't know how, but please use me as your restorer. So like Nehemiah, let us be people who are on mission with God. I love Nehemiah. Um, you're going to love this book. He lived, his life was larger than life. And do you know why? Because he lived into a story that was larger than his own story. Larger than his own story. I know this because look at the very end, the last words, chapter 1. Six words. After all this, he kind of says almost as an aside, oh, <laughs> I almost forgot to tell you, I was the cupbearer of the king. I was the cupbearer of the king. That's my day job. But then I think Nehemiah would give us a wink and he would say, actually, my day job is I'm a restorer. I just moonlight as a cupbearer because that's where God has me right now. Because Nehemiah, he was living into a larger story than his own. He was living into God's story, and I think that's so awesome. So don't you already love this guy? Don't you already love this guy? Just one chapter in. He was all in for God, living all out for God. God was the center of his life. He had first things first. And again, we know that. We know that because he was a man who shared God's heart a man of prayer, a man of the word, a man with a passion for God and for his name, a man who was a servant of God and who was living on mission with God. And I'm just curious, as we look at that list, how are you doing on these things? 
Where's God in the order of your life? In reality right now, would you say he's first? And again, no, this is not a guilt trip, okay? It's just we, we reflect and examine like David in Psalm 19. You encounter the word and then you ask questions, Lord, where's my heart? And I'm curious of those six things, if you were to pick two, like I need to really drill into those, what would they be? Maybe if you're taking notes, put a star by those two. And I want to wrap up. I just very briefly want to hone in on two of those, two of them, prayer and the word. If you remember early in my pastoring here, I talked about the rhythm of Jesus' life. In Luke 6, we learned that the rhythm of the life of Jesus was he went from solitude with his father to community to ministry, solitude to community to ministry. And we did a whole series on that. He lived, or we would live, from Christ to community to cause. We would live up, in, and out. But it's got to start with the up. It's got to start with Christ. That's what Sarah was sharing. Sarah, I feel like you wrote this last part. Um, You've got to start there. In order to function as a restorer, if I want to be a healer in places of brokenness, if I want to be a shalom bringer in the spaces I inhabit with the lives around me, if I want to stand in the gap for God, I have got to be walking with him. I've got to be walking with him in prayer and word. As Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine. I'm the vine. Okay, let's get this straight. I'm the vine. You're the branch. If you will abide in me, and if I abide in you, then you will bear much fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. You can do, do you not feel that in your gut, right? When you're not walking with him, you know what spills out of your life onto people, right? Do you not know that, feel that in your gut? Five years ago, a little over five, before I even came pastor here, Jack, can you help me with this? I drew a diagram for you guys, and I'm just going to be brief with this, but I want to illustrate this for you. I don't know how well you can see this. Um but we'll give it a shot. Okay, here's a, here's a little hill. Here's a house with a crooked roof. Sorry about that. Uh, I did not do well in art class, okay? That all of us, when, we come to, when we're living our life before Jesus, okay, my life before Jesus, there is only one well that we drink from. You know that? That well, well's got a little roof on the top. That well, the New Testament says, it's called the flesh or the sinful nature. It's all the junk that dwells inside of the sinful heart. The anger, the bitterness, the lack of contentment, the jealousy, the comparison, um, you know, revenge, lust, all of those things. This is the well before Jesus that we drink from. That's what's inside of our heart. That's what comes out, okay? But when I come to Jesus, suddenly he gives me access to a new and a living well, He gives me His Holy Spirit who lives inside of me, and the Spirit of God produces inside of me His fruit, which would be things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, self-control. Those are the things that He produces inside of me. I have access to a new well. We just sang about that. How cool that we just sang about that. But here's the key. 
I have to choose to access this wealth. If I am not walking with God, if I am not regularly in word and prayer, then forget sharing his heart, forget having a passion for him, forget having a servant attitude for him, forget living on mission with him. Does that make sense? I have got, and I'm going to tell you, it is so easy. You know this in your life. It's so easy to get so busy that all I do is I just step out outside my door. You know, I, I'm too busy to walk with the Lord. And when you do that, you know what well you're going to be drinking out of? It's going to be that sinful nature again. And the people around you and the places God wants you to be restored, what they're going to experience in you is, is that sinful nature, the old flesh, right? They're going to experience the anger and the, the, the lust and all of that stuff. And that isn't going to help anybody. Not only that, you're going to probably make things worse. That, I mean, is that, do you not know the reality of this? I do. So what I have to do is I have to do the work every day of like, I care, Lord, so much for you and want to center my life on you that I'm going to do the work every day of giving you time. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to be in your word because as I do that, I'm allowing the Holy Spirit and I'm drinking from that well and he begins to fill me with who he is so that I can really be a restorer, that I can be a shalom bringer because I'll have the shalom of God in my heart. So this is why this first chapter to me is so important, because this is the kind of God, person God wants to make me, and this is the kind of person that I have to be. And that's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and then everything else you need, including being restored, that will be given to you as well, but seek first the kingdom of God. Okay, let's wrap up. Um, we're going to do this every week, and I've got to figure out timing on this, so I'll get better at it. If you flip to the back you'll see a bunch of head, heart, hands. Maybe go to the furthest one left in the book or the furthest, closest to the, there's enough in these for every week. Maybe that first one. So when you get the pages down, I'll reference those in the future. Find that first one. Because every week we want to ask three simple questions. I hope you can see this on the first row, but you've got it in the book. My first question for you is, is as we went through this chapter, what, what's the most important thing you learned? Like one or two things you learned. The three categories are just ways for you to think. You don't have to answer all of them. But what are some things you learned about being a follower or about being a restorer? What it means to live in a restoring community? What are the, maybe the two most important things this morning that you just like, that was big. That was big up here in my head. That was big. Just maybe a word or two. What would those be? Most important thing you learn, you're taking in your head. What about your heart? Because anytime, you know, when I'm in the Word or you're, you're hearing a sermon, so many times God like grabs you by the collar, right? I don't mean that in a bad way, but he'll grab you. He'll grab your heart and he's like, that's for you. What would the heart takeaway be for you? What's the thing that God is saying? That's for you. That's for you personally. And in the hands. So what are you going to do about it? What's a way you can apply that this week? Whatever God was speaking to you, what's a way you can put that in your heart this week? And here's why this is important. This is what we should be doing with the Word of God all the time, head, heart, and hands. 
but if you're in a small group or a triad or you're going to be walking with some people through Nehemiah following this, that, what you just did, is going to be the basis of your discussion in your group or your triad. So what was God teaching me? What was he saying to me? What do I need to do? Okay. All right, 12th. If we're going to be restorers, we've got to keep first things first. We have to first and foremost center our lives on God and around him, right? We have to be centered on him the way Nehemiah was. So as we start this journey as a restorer, to me, this is the first place to stop. I love how this chapter begins, how the book begins, because it begins with God. And he'll be the central figure in all this. So 12th, let's take this seriously, okay? Let's, I mean, we all, I think we all, most of us want to be a restorer. So let's lean into him. Can we lean into him? so that God can use us in the places where he's put us and the people around us. So, would you stand with me? I'd like to pray. Father, thank you for your word, for this book, for this first chapter, just how rich it is. And as I stand before your word, and I'm looking at Nehemiah, Lord, I feel like I fall so short of him. I think a truth were if we knew Nehemiah, he would say the same thing. So, Lord, just help us to know as restores, we've got to do the first things first. We really got to walk with you. So, Lord, help us this week to really ratchet up our time with you every day so that what we're giving the people around us is the fruit of your spirit and not the flesh. And, Lord, just generate in us through your word and prayer, Lord, your heart and a passion for you, and a desire to serve you, and a desire to walk on mission. So we just come humbly before you, and help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. That's our prayer. So pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, 12th. Um, next week, um, Danny Payne is going to be preaching. In two weeks, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2. But 12th, as always, you are sent to be a restorer.